In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I sit down with a lady who is a prize-winning author and bluegrass musician. Marnie Walters-Burgess is rediscovering her passion for banjo and playing music after being struck down with multiple sclerosis, which left her unable to play for 15 years. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Marnie Walters-Burgess, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you. You've just started to plan to do up your bus, head around Australia. What's going to happen? What are you up to? Oh, we just like to travel like to wake up every morning in a different location. That's pretty good. What about the bus? Tell us about the bus. The bus, oh, it's, it was a school bus. It was full of seats and chewing gum. And uh, Mark renovated it into a apartment, I suppose. And it's beautiful. We live in it. <laughs> it's interesting you say the... The chewing gum, you know, that's uh, that's another world than children. <laughs> chewing gum, yeah. There was a lot of it. Any How? stories written under seats? No. You're going to travel out. What are you going to do when you get the bus going and when you start travelling again? Well, we kind of, we always play and we usually get jobs in pubs on the way. But we've been thinking of setting it up so we can play at the bus in caravan parks and there's lots of people in those places now and a great audience we need we need a trick dog or something to collect the money what sort of uh, music uh, will you be playing when you <laughs> when you do wander around well probably a bit of a cross-section mark writes a lot of our stuff and uh, so we'll be performing that and uh, we do a cross-section of singer, songwriter, country music. We used to do bluegrass. We had bluegrass bands. That's how we met Pixie. Those days you had a group called Rosewood. That's right. How did that all come about in the first place? Well, we lived in a little town called Mudgee in New South Wales. It was a little town then. It's not now. And uh, we just formed a little three-piece band and started getting heaps of work and then we went to Sydney and stayed there for a few years. That was where we really learned our trade. What sort of music were you playing in the first place? Um, me personally. Well the Rosewood band, uh, yeah. Uh, bluegrass, yeah, we were a bluegrass band. Now when you started music it was fairly early on, how did that all come about? Well it's just that mum played piano and uh, and I could sing a bit so uh, she'd play and I'd sing and we were the, we were the head of every family party <laughs> from playing with your mother talk us through how it developed and evolved for you as a musician uh, from then well I started playing ukulele because <laughs> the guitar was too big I couldn't hold it and uh, and I used to play every place I could and Finally, I got into the folk, folk scene in Melbourne and played at places like Frank Trainers. That was the big place in Melbourne where all the folk singers went. And uh, I played folk music for quite a while and went on uh, a thing called Kevin Dennis New Faces, which was one of, probably one of the first television uh, talent quests that was running. And, uh, and I was the first person they gave money to. <laughs> they said, take this money. I guess they wanted to take this money and go. <laughs> but no, that's... that's Must have been an amazing experience. What was it like in the studio? Oh, it was... It, it was old. <laughs> it was pretty funny. I, I recall a guy there who went on to this talent quest and he'd been on a binge obviously the night before and he was still half sozzled <laughs> and his, his act was singing and playing piano with a bottle on his head 
<laughs> yeah, probably the bottle from the night before. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and halfway through the song, the bottle fell off and he swore on live television. And they didn't have a button to press in those days. <laughs> oops. Yeah, it was oops. <laughs> so from that, you walked out to the stage. What happened then? <laughs> oh, with him. No, with you. Oh, well, what happened with him? With him? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> he got thrown out, I think. But, uh, yeah, I went on in Melbourne tonight with Graham Kennedy, if anyone remembers Graham Kennedy. Well, one of the legends of Australian yeah, television. Right. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was on his show. But I don't think they'd have a grab of it now. <laughs> it was a long time ago. What was he like, Graham Kennedy? He was a bit of a lad. He was a lad. He was very nice and, and, and welcoming and easy, made it easy for me because I was only a kid. You know. How old were you at the oh, time? I was about 17. <laughs> and playing ukulele? No, guitar then. You'd grown, it, grown no, into I'd the guitar? I'd grown into the guitar, yeah. So playing and singing? Yes, yes. What was the experience like in Melbourne tonight? That must have been a real piece of kudos. It was, yeah, it was pretty strange. It was like you were in a room by yourself because all the lights were on you and you couldn't see past the circle of light. So you didn't know what was out there. And being so early in television, I didn't know how many people were watching, <laughs> thank goodness. What about a studio audience? Was there one there? Uh, yeah, I think there was, yeah. That didn't intimidate you? I couldn't see them. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the reaction to the performance? Well, they liked it because I was doing some winning with no shoes on, goodness sake. <laughs> um, it was something that nobody had, had done, I guess, that folk singing was just cracking it then. And, uh, and everyone wanted to see it. So that was lucky for me. Did they invite you back? Well, that is, they would have, I think, but we used to live in a sort of a rural area and we didn't have a phone so they couldn't pick the phone up and say come in tomorrow night because I wasn't there there's no no one to ring so I guess the chance but I missed the chance passed me by so what happened as a result of the in Melbourne tonight appearance it must have built your profile a, a hell of a lot yes it did I I get quite a bit of work folk singing around but like, I only knew half a dozen songs. <laughs> Once I'd sang them, I was out. <laughs> so were you writing your own music or playing other people's music playing, at this stage? Playing other people's, yeah. Do you have any artists that really influenced you back in this time? <sighs> ah, I couldn't, I couldn't even think of it. Like, Bing Crosby and those guys were big at the time. And, uh, oh, no, I didn't listen to a lot of music. It was a bit later when I started to listen to rock and stuff that I listened to anything but folk and classical. <laughs> so your mother was a classical pianist? She was an everything pianist. She could play um, Rachmaninoff and all that and, and then all the modern stuff as well. And she could just pick it up and play it. A good influence on you musically? Oh, yeah, yeah. I reckon. <laughs> what do you remember of those days growing up with your mum uh, musically? Um, she played, we had a piano and she played pretty well every day. And uh, I knew the tunes by heart kind of thing and I'd sit there and listen to them. And she was very, very good. She was a bit of a child prodigy. And so with your mum, did she utilise her talent? No, I never got the chance. So how did she come to be such a prodigy? Uh, well, she had um, lessons as a child and was always pushing for new stuff. <clears throat> and she decided she wanted to play Rachmaninoff's Prelude in C-sharp minor. And the teacher said, well, that's very hard, but she learned it anyway. And she could play it at age 11. That's pretty young. So back to country Victoria, hmm. where were you at this stage? Uh, I lived at a, in a suburb called Nunawading. 
that not many people have heard of, I guess. Oh, no, it's pretty big. Oh, so back it? in those days, it would have been fairly uh, rural. Oh, it was, yeah. It was all orchards and paddocks. <laughs> what do you think when you go back there these days? I don't go back. <laughs> I remember how the place was when I lived in it. No, that's what I want. I don't want to see it like it is. So when did you move to New South Wales? Uh, New South Wales, I, I made a couple of moves to New South Wales, but finally, I guess around the mid-70s, I, I went up there and stayed there. And, and that, you went to Mudgee? Yeah, Mudgee. Why Mudgee? Um, why Mudgee? I don't know. Why Mudgee? <laughs> well, we bought a property there. And uh, we had a thousand-acre property in Mudgee, bred cattle. And uh, I got a lot of experience chasing cattle around, which occurs in the book. <laughs> so I used all that experience to write the book. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, I'm curious. How old were you when you're, you're running around a thousand-acre property? Because it's... A, a fair bit of experience you would have gained at this stage. Yeah. What happened then? I, I guess I was about in my twenties. I'd been about twenty-five or so, and uh, and we just ran the property, and we had a, um, a house in Mudgee, and it was um, we used to rent rooms out to people, like it was a big house. It was made for that kind of thing. And uh, and then my husband got a bit flighty and ran off. <laughs> and that was when I started playing bluegrass music with Mark. Now, renting rooms out, you must have met some interesting people. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah there was a <clears throat> big um, uh, police presence there once when they thought there was going to be trouble in town. And they sent all these police out and they all stayed at our house, at boarding house. And uh, they, were <laughs> they were pretty funny guys. And, uh, and I sort of cooked for them. I walked in there one day into the kitchen and there was all these police standing in there. And I'd, I was looking at belt buckles, you know. They were giant people. And uh, one of them who hadn't seen me was standing up the other end swearing like crazy and they all just parted and there I was standing at the other end and he was really embarrassed and he kind of got his hat and he put it on my head you know and he sorry kind of thing and I said gee you've got a big <coughs> head <laughs> and they all cracked up that was good because the whole weekend was excellent then from policemen to what other sort of characters? Uh, oh, just itinerant people, mostly, yeah. Just young single blokes. And, uh, yeah, I didn't do it for too long. I'm not much of a housekeeper. So at that stage you met Mark, you're starting to play a bit of bluegrass and rock. Must have been great times. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I bought my first banjo back then and sort of learnt to play it and uh, that was a bit exciting. Why banjo? Uh, I just like the sound of it. I just love the sound of it. Yeah. So the one I bought first was a sort of an El Cheapo but it was a good one and uh, the one I've got now is a really good one. <laughs> so you're still playing these days? Well yes, as a matter of fact after 15 years away from it I, I got MS and uh, couldn't play and uh, I'd try and try and try and it didn't work for me and then St Valentine's Day this year I sat down, I was going to sell it and I sat down with, with it to get some photos and I thought oh, I'll try and play it again and I did. Suddenly it was there, I could do it after 15 years. How'd you feel? Oh, <laughs> over the moon, <laughs> it was really good. So that getting back into that real bluegrass. Yeah, I've got to work at it more. I'm not very good. Fifteen years away is a long time, but uh, yeah, get getting back there slowly. So, 
Let's go back to the Rosewood days when you're just starting, you've picked up the banjo. How did that all evolve? Well, we the three of us, there were three of us, a bass player as well, Greg O'Carroll, and uh, we started working just around the area and then further and further out and we went up to Scone and places like that and we had a little circuit that we'd do and uh, we just kept playing and decided then we'd go to Sydney and try our luck. It must have been going to the big smoke from the Lyle Mudgee. Yeah, it was. It was. What happened? Oh, well, we got down to Sydney and we just got lots of work because we were about the only bluegrass band in Sydney at the time working. You know, there were other bluegrass bands around, but we're the only working one. And, uh, and there were there was another really good, but they were a very traditional band, and and ourselves, and uh, we just got so much work. Well, what we, could, we couldn't turn it down. What were the crowds like at the time with the new sort of music coming in? Oh, they were amazing. They jump around, and yeah, they really liked it. Because bluegrass is real tap your foot stuff, so so uh, yeah, they loved it. What sort of clubs were you playing at this stage? Oh, now you've got me. Uh, we played the Trade Union Club. That was one I remember. Um, there were other clubs. I can't think of, the, of which which ones they were now. The Trade Union Club stands out. The what was so special about that one? Only about ten people turned up and we all stand up on stage and... Mark introduced everybody in the audience to everybody else. That's how few people were there. But we had a good time anyway. What's the magic about stepping up on stage and playing to an audience, hey, of even ten? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's just on a really good day when you really connect with the audience, it's like being one of them kind of thing. You know, you sort of get in touch with the audience a bit and they they love it and you play better. Feed off the energy. Yeah, you do. You're playing around the clubs, you're getting a lot of work. Mm. Where did you go from there? Uh, well, we did a, <clears throat> a lot of festivals and, and stuff. We did Charlie Pride's festival fe- um, show and Phyllis Diller was another one, Lee Conway was another one. We used to play with all these people. And uh, we just, it just got really big and then the old story, the band kind of fell apart. As it does now, Charlie Pride must have been pretty exciting times to play with such an icon. Uh, Was he he that big back in those days? Oh, he was pretty big back then, yeah. Yeah, he was. He was good too. (laughs) Describe Charlie Pride as a person. Oh, I hardly met him because he sort of stayed in the background and raced off after the show, so we sort of didn't meet him, really. But, uh, but yeah, he seemed quite a nice person. Yeah. And you mentioned Phyllis Diller? Oh, Phyllis Diller. Yeah, Phyllis Diller. We, we, <laughs> poor old Phyllis. We played at this little club in, on the Gold Coast, and, and it was Greek a Greek club, and you know how the Greeks throw plates on the floor? Well, they started doing that, and poor old Phyllis had just had the face done. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she's sort of hiding in the background, saying, stop this. So you were the um, the musical interlude while Phyllis was the comedian? <clears throat> yeah, that's right. What was she like as a person? Because she was fairly gregarious. What was she like when the lights went out? Well, same as Charlie Pride, we never saw her. She just bolted. And I, I guess they'd probably get sick of it, you know. They don't want to meet the band. <laughs> They've got their own agenda. From Sydney to the Gold Coast, any other big names that you got to play with back in those days? <sighs> Only Pixie. <laughs> He's a pretty big name. <laughs> he, <coughs> he was doing shows with... Buddy Williams and I think Slim, and he was doing pretty big stuff. And every now and then when he wouldn't have any work on, he'd come and work in our band. So that's how I got to meet him. 
Moving along, you left Sydney. Yeah. You, why did you leave Sydney if it was going well for you down there? Why leave Sydney? Um, we left Sydney and went to the Gold Coast and it went equally as well for us there. Yeah, that was pretty good. Early days on the Gold Coast. Yeah. What are your recollections of that? <sighs> um, my recollections. Um, oh, shows, big shows. We played at Texas Tavern and and the Coolangatta Leagues Club and a few things like that, you know. And uh, that was all pretty good. But it gradually, as the band dissipated, Mark and I became a duo. And uh, we were pretty hot back then because we'd been with the band for so long, we were playing really well. And he and I travelled up to North Queensland and back with a caravan just playing. So that, and we never went back south. We stayed on the Gold Coast. Moving around and having that itinerant lifestyle must have been a lot of fun back in the younger days. Yeah, it was. It was good fun, yeah. What was the highlight of doing that? Oh, gee, you got me now. The highlight of doing it, just doing it was the highlight. It was good to do. It was fun. Once you got up yeah. north, different audiences? Um, yeah, a little bit different, not, not too much. Pretty well the same people jumping around. <laughs> you finally, you settled in Kilkeven. Mm. Why Kilkeven? <laughs> um, we were looking for land, a place to buy, and Kilkeven was pretty cheap at the time, so that was our target. What was it like back in those days? Very rural and very, very remote. Very, well, yeah. Yeah, very rural. And uh, there was no phones then and, you know, nothing like that. Still travelling around a lot? Um, no, Mark ended up working for the local council because he's a diesel fitter by trade. Ended up running half of it. <laughs> so he only retired you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago or something. Did you miss the road once you started to settle down in the Kilkeven Shire? Uh, no, not really, because <clears throat> we kept travelling. We kept doing it. And we'd go fair distances. You know, we'd go up to Maryborough, for instance, and play. You know, we, we still travelled a fair bit. Do you have recollections of, because the, uh, the early... Gimpy Music Master was in the area. Yeah. Were you involved with that? No. No, we never did. We were working in, in Gimpy at the time at quite a few of the pubs. And uh, one of the pubs we worked at was just across the road from the muster office. And we went over to the people at the muster office and said, here we are, this is what we do, here's our flyers. Um, we're just working across the road if you want to come and catch a bit of the act because you might give us a go on the muster. They didn't turn up. What do you put that down to? Um, Gympie. <laughs> Gympie. If you're not from Gympie, forget it. It's changed now. They've changed. But back then it was all like, this is our muster, you're not going on it, <laughs> this kind of thing. Because you were originally from out of town? I guess so. Yeah, or from Kilkeven, which was not good. How have you seen the evolution even of the whole Gympie area since you've since 30 years <laughs> that you've been here? Um, yeah, well, we had an amalgamation and that was a disaster. Uh, never mind. But Kilkeven gets treated like the poor country bumpkins. That, that's how they see us, from Gympie to Kilkeven. Like they used to at Widgee, they used to think about them like that. And uh, now they, they've transferred that to us. <laughs> you mentioned that you got MS. Yeah. What was the story there? And it must have been, because you could pick up now the banjo again, you're out the other side of it. Mm. What was the experience like and how did it all start? And oh, it was horrible. Because <laughs> you, you lose a lot of things. And, and 
one night we were booked to play at the um, at the the Great Horse Rod concert, the Kilkeven Great Horse Rod concert. And back then they used to get a thousand riders, so there were quite a few people in the audience. And uh, I was out the back warming up the banjo and my fingers, and the MC said, "You're on." So I walked from backstage to front stage. Played. I was playing when I walked across, and when I got to the front stage, I couldn't play a note. Just went. Everything went. Couldn't play anything on the banjo, and I couldn't understand what was going wrong. And that was what it was. How did you react when you'd got the diagnosis? Well, I didn't feel any different really, but there were symptoms. I had symptoms like skewed vision, that kind of thing. I tried to ride the push bike one day and I looked up and I could see two roads and I didn't know which one to go down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that it just pulled me up pretty well for 15 years. And, uh, and I kept playing guitar, which was my first, in- well, after ukulele was my first instrument. And, um, and that helped sort of, and it helped me play. How did you fight the disease? Staying fit. By staying fit, I used to go to the pool every day and they'd all laugh at me because I could only swim 25 metres if I was lucky. And they'd laugh at me and they taught me how to swim. And uh, so I started swimming more and more and finally I could swim a kilometre. And, and the first thing you lose in MS is your strength. And, uh, well, for me it was. And it gradually came back. Strength and balance came back with the constant exercise. You put it down just to the constant, constant exercise? Uh, well, a fair bit of it, yeah. Yeah, I, I used to have to self-inject every two days, which wasn't good. <laughs> but that probably helped too. Self-inject, uh, talk us through that. Uh, well... There's a substance called betaferon that you're supposed to inject into yourself. And I said, what does it do? How does it help me? And they said, we don't know, <laughs> but don't stop taking it. So every two days I'd have to stab this stuff into my body, and uh, which was all right, but after 15 years it started to develop side effects. And uh, not desperate ones you know just like itchy spots and things like that and uh yeah so when they said you don't have to take it anymore i pretty well had a party (laughs) must have been hard well i suppose uh diabetics sometimes diabetics have got to do it every day yeah yeah it it, it is it's a horrible thing (laughs) to tell you the truth (laughs) because in the end all all the needle sites you don't you you have different needle sites on your body and they all started to calcify it. And when I'd go to put an injection in there, it wouldn't go in. So that was when I started calling neurologists and saying, this isn't working. And so they said, stop taking it. Out the other side of it, what symptoms do you have these days? None. Not that I'm aware of. I've, Is I've, that normal for people from... You've obviously spoken to doctors and, and other people that have had it. Is it normal for you to get it and then come out the other side of it? I don't know. I don't know. I, I have met people who've never taken medication and they're surviving quite well. Um, but I, I don't know that many people get out the other side of it. I think uh, it, it gets a lot of people because it cripples them. And uh, I was just lucky. During this time, you were a fairly prolific writer. When did the writing start? Oh, when I was a little kid. I used to write, <laughs> I used to write books and sew them together with wool. <laughs> that were my books. And I just kept on from then. and. And uh, I wrote, tried writing a novel when I was about 16. You know, it was about pirates, <laughs> as you do. And uh, it, it just evolved. I just kept doing it. I just liked to do it. But I never went 
into competitions or anything until much later. Tell me about the first book. The first book I wrote, um, there was a lady in Kilkeven, um, Jeannie Montez, and uh, I wrote, she, she kept on to me about, I want you to write my life story, and I'd see this old lady, and she'd had a stroke, and she was a bit crippled up, and I thought, oh, God, I don't want, it's really hard to write a life story unless you've got backup stuff, you know, like newspaper clippings and things. And I thought, oh, I don't want to write this book. It's really boring about, you know, not for her, but just boring and some old lady living in a country town. Turned out she was one of Australia's best exhibition dancers in the 40s and 50s. And she ran the Trocadero in Sydney through the war years. Uh, she ran Cloudland up here. The iconic, yeah. iconic place that was knocked down by the Dean yeah, brothers. Yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> I finally relented. When I relented, when she told me this story, I couldn't believe what she was saying. It was just amazing. And she had all these scrapbooks as well. So that was the first book I wrote, her life story. Why did she pick you to write it? I don't know. I don't know. She, I'd see it at the, at the bowls club and stuff. And, uh, yeah, she just picked me. I don't know why. Fate. Why did she come to Kilkeven? Uh, she came to Kilkeven at the end of a, a long journey around the country. And they stopped at Kilkeven and decided to buy a block here. So there she was. And I'd kind of followed her life's journey, not knowing until she told me about it, but we'd done many of the same things through our lives. And uh, there she was. You say done many of the same things. How do you mean? <clears throat> um, well, in, in early stages of her career as a dancer, she went in a Highland dancing competition and won. I went in a Highland dancing competition and got third because I wasn't a dancer. <laughs> um, she was involved in a, a near accident in an aeroplane coming into the Gold Coast, got hit by a cyclone and uh, got hit with one of those big downdrafts and uh, very nearly drowned. <laughs> so the plane crashed? No, it didn't crash. The, the pilot saved them. Mm. Got that. Same thing happened to me. I, I was in a light plane and it didn't crash either, but oh, it was a bit close. <laughs> what happened? Um, <clears throat> well, we'd, we were coming up to the Gold Coast to do a show and uh, the boys had gone up in, some of them had gone up in a car with the PA and the rest of us hopped in this light plane. It was like four o'clock. It was when that Jack Nicholson got injured. I oh, walked into the it, propeller. That's right. It was right then. And uh, we're waiting for this plane. It was overcast and dismal. And the pilot said, oh, we'll have to wait till it clears. And a little, little opening appeared in the clouds. And we went for it. And, uh, and the drummer who was, he wouldn't go in the plane unless he could sit in the front seat. Thank you very much. And off we went, we were headed for this little hole in the clouds and the door came open. And there were papers flying around and there was lightning and rain. I'm looking at the tops of the trees and thinking they're a bit close. And I thought, this is another band down. <laughs> but no, no, the pilot got us up again and we went back to the airport, shut the door, <laughs> took off again with another pilot who had an instrument rating. The guy we the guy we had didn't have one. So when we got into cloud he didn't know where the hell he was because he didn't know he didn't have the instruments. So um, we got back in with the other pilot and off we went again. Were you afraid? Oh yes. <laughs> yes. But we didn't. We, we we did it all right. We got there. You're sitting there going, "Here's another band going down." <laughs> you got back in for another go, though. Oh yeah. Well, 
We wanted to get to the gig. <laughs> what was it like when the door flew open you're looking at the trees? It wasn't good because they were saying the number of our plane and over the radio and saying you don't have enough altitude and I'm thinking, no, we don't. <laughs> it was pretty scary at the time. So when you got another pilot, what happened when you got actually when you got on the ground? What was the the scenario then? Well, the, the first thing, because the drummer had been sitting in the other seat, uh, the side the door came open on, and I got to give it to him. He he took his sash off his belt, and only had the lap, and he was leaning out of the door of the plane, trying to shut it. And I thought that was pretty brave. Anyway, when we got back to the airport, we landed and he fell off the wing. <laughs> he didn't step off it, he pretty well fell off it. And he said, I'm going for a long walk. We didn't see him again <laughs> until he came back to collect his drums. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and you still got on. Who else got on the plane with you at that time? Oh, gee, who else? Let me think. There would have been, uh, I can't remember their names now. There was a, a guy called Frank Band-Aid. He was a, a roadie. <laughs> and he started to throw up and there were no bags. <laughs> we had to sit there in this little plane bumping around in the storm <laughs> with him throwing up. That wasn't good. What an adventure. <laughs> um, so the, the pilot didn't have an instrument rating. He's mm. taking off, looking to stay VFR, heading for that hole in the clouds what happened when you got on back onto the ground did he get reprimanded did you see i don't know i don't know but he paid for the other pilot out of his own pocket which was pretty good of him (laughs) so finally when you uh when you take off what was the feeling then oh we're all pretty (laughs) well are we gonna live through this but it was all right it was pretty bumpy and fog you know we're in cloud and we couldn't see for a long time. and uh, But that was all right. We got there. Back to the Jenny Montez story. So you had a lot in common. You both had the um, the, the incident in an aeroplane. What else did you have in common? Oh, I think uh, she, she came from pretty well the area that mum came from. She, and she was about the same age. Uh, and... There was, yeah, there were a few things. There was that. I can't remember the others. I should have read the book before I came in. What did you do with the book, with the story, once it was written? Um, Well, I I tried publishers, but when you're an unknown Australian author in those days, they didn't want to know. They had lots of American and English content and they didn't need Australians, I suppose. So... But anyway, we self-published it and uh, and I released it in town and all the locals loved it. So they all bought a copy and that was pretty good. So it's still for sale on, on uh, Amazon. You weren't discouraged from writing at this stage? You couldn't get it published? You weren't discouraged? You continue oh. to write? And, uh, yeah, I continued to write. So at that stage, <laughs> after um, the, uh, the book was uh, out, what happened? When did you continue to write? When did you start writing again? Well, I started writing the novel from before that and I just used to go back to it every now and then and fool around with it. And uh, I kept writing that all the way through and it pretty well taught me how to write. And uh, and the next one, I did the local football team story and uh, and they, they were quite a team. <laughs> And uh, they fielded um, uh, what, the wallabies, they call them, the wallabies. Yeah, they fielded kangaroos. The kangaroos, all oh, right. And see, I wrote a book about it and I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, the, they were really good, those guys. They really wanted me to succeed. And they all bought copies and no one had published it, of course. Tell us about the story. The story of the football team. Yeah. Well, they started just after the war for, the, I think, the second time. Um, they had a football club before that and then they started one up and, and they, they were playing on the local school 
grounds and and stuff. Anyway, they gradually got better and better, and uh, they were just farm boys, and they they have to plough the paddocks with horses, <laughs> and uh, they were fit because of that, and and. There was a team, there was a, a whole family called the Weirs, which were half the team. And uh, and they used to pass the pumpkins when they were loading pumpkins. And they used to use that kind of thing as football practice. And uh, they just became better and better. And half of them went to the city teams. And uh, yeah, they're just amazing. So Doug and Lloyd Weir were yeah, some of the right. some of the stars of the team, yeah. and especially Doug. It's Lloyd was the international. Lloyd was international. Mm. What happened with Lloyd? Uh, well, he got taken in by one of the city clubs, and <clears throat> next thing he's they're playing in international football. But he, they were all gentlemen. They really, they weren't players. They didn't go out to hurt each other, to hurt people. And, and that was different for others. They, you know, they played people who wanted to hurt them. But uh, I think they're pretty indestructible, really. Doug went from uh to North North Brisbane, then North Sydney, <laughs> and he went on to the Kangaroos. Oh yeah, you know more about it than I do. <laughs> it was the halcyon days of rugby league. Mm. How did you feel talking to these guys about their stories? Ah, oh, at home, completely at home. Though they, they honestly, they couldn't do enough to help me. And uh, and in the end, I got them all, to, all of them that were left, I got them all together for a photograph. And they all turned up. There they all were, ready to be photographed. They, they were just really good. Anything they had, they had photos and stuff of the old days and they made those available to me. And uh, yeah, they were just real gentlemen. Why did they want you to write their story? Was it because of the other story you'd written? No. No, oh, well, partly. Um, the the guy at the post office, he was secretary of the club. He played and he was secretary for a long time. And he had all this memorabilia and he gave it to me. He said, here, why you want to write? You want to write? I thought about writing the story. And he said, here's all the stuff. So I went through it and oh, I thought, this is going to be big. And it was. <laughs> what was their recollection of going to the big smoke and representing Australia. Ah, oh, well, they they were obviously proud of the guys that did it. Yeah, they were they were a team. They were a real team. They weren't just a bunch of players brought in from here and there and everywhere. They were all local boys. They were, and half of them were related. For them, looking back, how did they feel? I guess proud of themselves. Rightly so. Then through all of this, you're writing another book. Yeah, in the background. It was something that was a bit of a labour of love then? It was, yeah. Yeah, it was. It kind of went from the pirate sort of story and evolved. And as as I evolved, so did the story, which was really good. And it ended up nothing like the pirate story <laughs> What did you do with the early uh, information from the pirate days? Oh, lost it. <laughs> so talk us through the actual, it was a novel. Talk us through the, the synopsis of what you were writing about. Well, I just had this idea of <clears throat> what it would be like to find yourself on another planet and not know who the hell you were. And that was kind of where I started from. And I wrote the story about a boy who was in that very position and he got raised in Australia by a shearer. <laughs> so, and I, and I timed it exactly my lifetime so I remembered it all and I did a lot of research on it. So, so the research in it's pretty accurate, I think. 
And uh, for anyone who reads it, they'd go, oh, I remember that. <laughs> what was your reaction to an Australian sci-fi? Oh, none. <laughs> no one knew about Hardly anyone knows about it. Now I can't get it. I, I'm not a salesperson. I'm a writer. I'm not a salesperson, so I'm not good at selling things. Um, and people who've read it love it, but I just can't get enough people to read it. Tell us about some of the highlights of the story. What <coughs> sticks out in your mind when you uh, talk about it? <sighs> well, I don't talk about it very often, but what... One of the highlights is when I, I thought about writing this chapter on the, the boy and his cousin, his, you know, sort of cousin, <laughs> and, uh, and they steal a plane. And I remembered reading a long time ago about two boys stealing an aircraft and taking off in it. And the hardest part is, is getting them back down. <laughs> And I thought, well, that sounds like a good thing to put in. So I wrote that into the story. And I knew nothing about planes. And one thing I've learnt is that don't write about what you don't know. So I, I dug out this pilot. He was um, a glider pilot. And we were staying in Mudgee at the time, working. And uh, this guy said, I said, oh, I need some information. He said, oh, come round. So I took my nephew with me, we went round there and uh, I asked him all these questions, what would you do and what would happen? And he gave me the whole rundown on what would happen if two boys stole light aircraft. And it was just word for word perfect and it was all him that told it and I wrote it all down. And so that, that was probably one of the highlights of the book for me. Interesting though, a sci-fi aspect it's not something that's very common especially for a female from a country country victoria <laughs> why sci-fi well it's more fantasy than sci-fi there's not there's not a lot of sci-fi in it it's just a fantasy story you know i just made it up <laughs> when you decided to uh, self-publish you went to uh, amazon talk us through that process for aspiring authors that want to get a, a book out there uh -oh. what actually happens when you want to try and get the book out and get known yeah well it, it's really good if a publisher takes you up of course you, you've got much more access to the media and uh, and advertising whereas if you do it yourself you've got none <laughs> and i'd had this i'd tried a lot of times to get it published and uh, it sort of didn't work they weren't interested in it and finally i someone told me about amazon and i had a look at that and you can put it on there if you've got a manuscript and it doesn't matter how poor it is you can put it on amazon and I've read some stuff that, that's on Amazon that just bewilders me. And uh, so I, I, I didn't do it myself because I'm not that clever. But a friend of mine put it on there. And uh, subsequently all my books have been put on there. So the three of them are available. Well, give us the, the titles of all three of the books that, uh, that you do have. Um, the Jean Montez story. The Kilkeven Gomeri Reds and Inquiline. So if someone wants to find out, they just search for those, is that...? If they go to Amazon, um, they can put those names in. And if they put my name in as well, Marnie Walters Burgess, they should come up. Those, those books should come up. Alternatively, they can go to my Facebook site, which has got them. So you're still writing these days? Yeah, I a little bit, not a lot, but <laughs> a little bit. Because you've also uh, written quite a few short stories. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I I discovered that um, Gimpy Council and the Bendigo Bank jointly put a short story contest on every year, and I thought oh, I've got that. <laughs> 
So I did, and I I did it for about four or five years, and uh, and and did pretty well. I get pretty well a place every time. Sometimes I got first, which was a bit of a bonus, but other times second and third were fine with me. <laughs> it must have been a real thrill to get acknowledgement for your writing. Oh, it was, yeah. For the first time, I'd never had acknowledgement from my writing until then. How frustrating is it that for someone that can't get the publishing deal that you'd really like and there's obviously a lot of people that write books it must be good to have an outlet yeah oh it's excellent yeah really is it's good it's good to know that other people enjoy what you write that's that's it yeah so what are you writing about these days nothing (laughs) nothing pretty well i was we sort of playing music again pretty heavily and uh, you know if I get a chance I write a bit but nothing exciting. So the music these days what do you hope to do you're going to get the bus together it's where we sort of started our chat is that you're going to get the bus together and and head out? Well the bus is all set up all we need is some speakers and stuff to put outside and we can put on shows ourselves. Yeah, which would be a bit of fun. And hopefully finance finance the touring around. Oh, that'd be a bonus. That'd be great. You're back to playing music again. It must be a real thrill post the multiple sclerosis. Mm. Oh, it is, yeah. Well, I played pretty well right through, but guitar, not banjo. I couldn't play the banjo. Mark had to take up ukulele to make up for us. <laughs> What was it like when you realised that you could play banjo again? Oh, amazing. I was amazed. I just sat there with my mouth open for about 10 minutes. <laughs> you took quite a, a, a bit of time out from it. Yeah. Why did you actually pick it up and start trying? Did you realise you had the dexterity? No, I tried many times through the 15 years that I had the disease and uh, never worked. It always felt alien I couldn't play it and then this one time I started getting all the things I couldn't get before and gradually they've come back slowly they're still not back fully but they're coming back (laughs) is the same enjoyment playing these days what you used to have back in the the early days of Rosewood Um, well it's different now see because we were banned then it's it's more exciting you're up there with four or five other people so it's pretty exciting kind of thing to do and it's like you're you're in a bubble with the other people that are playing and the music sort of bounces around in the bubble and it's great (laughs) is there a highlight from those days that really sticks out no it's all it's all sticks out all of it (laughs) it was great it was really good. And playing with really good people like Pixie and other people like him, um, it was just so good. It, it just pulled you playing up, you know. You, you, playing with good people always makes you play better. It certainly does. Marnie Walters-Burgess, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Oh, thank you.